Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Mai Tai. What about you, Del? I am drinking a glass of red wine, and on this week's episode, we will be looking at Betty Broderick and how she went from a typical suburban housewife to a double murderer. This story involves betrayal and gives us a glimpse into what happens when someone's world comes crashing down and has deadly consequences for the people they feel are at fault. Betty Broderick was born in 1947 to religious Catholic parents in Bronxville, New York. Her parents ran a strict household and Betty recalled being trained from a young age to become a great housewife and mother. Betty went on to graduate from college where she earned a degree in early childhood education. Betty met Dan Broderick at the University of Notre Dame. Dan was also raised in a Catholic household and the two were soon headed down the altar. They married on April 12, 1969 and Betty gave birth to their first child, Kim, in 1970. Three children, Lee, Daniel, and Brett, soon joined the family. After Kim was born, Dan completed his medical education and decided to pursue a law degree at Harvard Law School. While Dan was completing his education, Betty was the main provider for the family. After graduation, Dan was hired by a law firm in San Diego, California, and the family relocated. Dan became the breadwinner with Betty working part-time and selling Tupperware. In the fall of 1982, Dan hired Linda Kalkina as his legal assistant. A year later, Betty accused Dan of cheating on her with Linda, but Dan denied this. In February 1985, Dan moved out of the family home against Betty's wishes. Dan was given custody of the children, and Betty dropped them off at his doorstep one by one. Dan eventually admitted to having an affair with Linda, and this caused the Broderick's divorce to become toxic and drawn out. Dan was a prominent lawyer, and Betty claimed that this made the divorce proceedings not go in her favor. She claimed that Dan used his influence over the legal community in their area to gain custody of the children prevent Betty from a portion of Dan's income she felt she was entitled to, and the selling of the marital home against her wishes. The divorce was finalized four years after Dan filed the initial petition. After the divorce, Betty's behavior became very erratic. She left hundreds of profane messages on Dan's answering machine and repeatedly violated the restraining order that Dan had received against her. At one point, Betty drove her car through the front door of Dan's home while their children were home. Dan and Linda married on April 22, 1989. Linda was so concerned about Betty's behavior that she urged Dan to wear a bulletproof vest at the ceremony. Thankfully, Betty did not show up at the wedding and the ceremony proceeded without incident. However, after the wedding, Betty allegedly taunted Linda by mailing facial cream and slimming treatment ads. This all had a tragic end. On November 5th, 1989, Betty drove to Dan and Linda's home with a Smith & Wesson revolver. Betty used a key that she had taken from her daughter, Lee, and entered the house while the couple was sleeping. At 5.30 a.m., Betty fired at both Dan and Linda. Two bullets hit Linda in the head and chest, which killed her instantly. 
Three bullets were fired at Dan, with one hitting the nightstand as he was reaching for the phone. Another hit the wall, and the final hit Dan in the chest, killing him. Linda was 28, and Dan was two weeks away from his 45th birthday. There was evidence that Betty had removed the phone from the bedroom to prevent the calling of police. Dan did not die instantly, and Betty claimed to have spoken with him while he lay dying. Betty contacted her daughter Lee and her boyfriend prior to calling the police. She never denied her involvement in the murders, and during her trials, she claimed to have been startled by Linda screaming to call the police when the gun went off. Betty had stated that the murders were not premeditated, with her having no intentions of killing them. Betty's defense at her first trial was that she was a battered woman who suffered at the hands of her ex-husband. The prosecution argued against this assertion, but claimed that Betty was a schemer who wanted revenge against her ex-husband and his new younger wife. The first trial ended with a hung jury after two jurors couldn't decide whether Betty had intended to kill Dan and Linda. The judge declared a mistrial and the prosecutor stated they intended to try Betty again. The second trial was similar to the first in terms of what each side presented, but the jury reached a different outcome. This time, Betty was found guilty of two counts of second-degree murder. She was sentenced to two consecutive 15-year-to-life terms with an additional two years for illegal use of a firearm. Betty is currently housed at the California Institute for Women. She has been denied parole three times, first in 2010 and then again in 2011 and 2017. The Board of Parole Hearing cited her lack of remorse and not acknowledging any wrongdoing. She will be eligible for parole again in 2032 when she is 84 years old. Jenny, what are your thoughts on Betty Broderick and the murder of Dan and Linda Broderick? I think this case is the best example of what happens when someone is really bitter and that bitterness and anger consumes them and when someone doesn't seek help or know how to regulate their emotions. Like Maybe that sounds harsh, but I don't know. I feel for Betty to an extent, but again, she just really let the anger get the best of her and it obviously brought two lives to an end and it made her children suffer even before their father was killed. And even before their dad's murder, the nastiness between the parents really took an obvious emotional toll on them. You can watch a video where two of her kids are interviewed by Oprah and there's a voicemail that gets played or it's a, not a voicemail, it's a phone call between Betty and Rhett, I want to say, maybe not. It's between Betty and one of her sons and he's just crying, pleading with her to just stop it. And it's really devastating to hear Of course, I've never been in a position like Betty's or anybody in this case, but things really escalated quickly. I don't think Dan was the greatest person ever. I think he seemed difficult to deal with. And I guess I can't blame him for using his legal expertise against her, but I think it is kind of cruel to an extent, like taking away some of the alimony or like charging her money for if she's like using like expletives and like calling him names. I don't really know how that's legal, but I guess that's a story for another day. I also do think he was gaslighting her and degrading her, calling her like fat and ugly and boring. She said he said that multiple times. And all of that kind of stuff just really made the divorce ugly. And 
he was definitely bitter to an extent, but I don't think he let it consume him the way that Betty did. He seemed to really be able to move on with his life. And I understand him keeping the kids away from Betty if she was behaving erratically and him feeling worried for his safety in different situations. I don't think we'll ever really know the truth between what happened to them because it's very he said, she said, plus what the children said. It's kind of one of those really complicated situations. Linda and Dan didn't deserve to die, even if they were having an affair and doing something immoral. They don't deserve to die for that. And Betty doesn't have remorse. And I think that really does show that she wasn't thinking about her children in the long run. Because yes, she was going to get some gratification and like satisfaction from Dan and Linda being dead. But she never... I don't think she's really ever stopped to think about like the consequences it was going to have on her kids, which is really upsetting. But I don't think he's the greatest person either. Del, what do you think? I definitely agree with you. I think this is a case of bitterness. Anytime this is really discussed, and I know that Lifetime uh, used this for the movie based on this case, a woman scorned. She was scorned. She was jealous. and. That led to two people dying. I agree with you. It's not the best situation that they were in. And I think that Dan should have taken steps to divorce Betty before beginning a relationship with Linda. But it's one of those things of it is what it is. And once you get to thinking about the children in this case, it really doesn't matter. I think that both sides did not put aside their own animosity towards each other for the sake of their kids. I personally don't really care too much that she had like reduced alimony in the marital home because at the end of the day, you're divorcing him. And while you may feel that you are entitled to certain things, unless you had a legal agreement, like a prenuptial agreement with him, he's going to make sure that he is in the best position coming out of his marriage with you. And I don't think that we can really fault him for that, especially when you consider all of the emotional turmoil that Betty was putting him through and putting Linda through. I think that the kids in this case really were ignored and really were seen as pawns to be played by both sides to hurt each other. And that's sad. It's always a sad situation when kids are in the middle of the drama that goes on with their parents. I do think that Dan was not the nicest individual. He probably had some hubris to go along with him and that led him to basically treating Betty like a servant or subservient to him and then when he found something better he kind of brushed her off and moved on with his life. I do think it's interesting that even though it would work in her favor Betty hasn't shown any remorse or any acknowledgement that what she did was wrong. You would think that after all this time it would be an easy thing for her to do but I think that just goes to show that once you get to that level of animosity it's really hard to let go and some grudges really do last forever. 
Yeah, that's a a good point you're making. In that Oprah interview I saw with her kids, her son, and this is from 1992, and her son says that he thinks that she is remorseful, but she won't admit it because she somehow thinks that means that Dan has won. And I can see that because the whole thing was about who's going to come out on top. Again, like that's what it seemed like Betty and Dan cared about. And they both have, you know, like every right to be mad at the other for various reasons. Like what you were saying, their children really did become pawns. One of the questions that people had about this case was whether Betty had battered woman syndrome. We discussed this briefly during our episode on Lorena Bobbitt, but let's look at the syndrome again and how it's been used in the criminal justice system. Battered woman syndrome is a form of post traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Psychologist Lenore Walker coined the term in her book, The Battered Woman. Walker states, quote, battered woman syndrome is the psychological effects of living with intimate partner violence, end quote. There are generally four stages of the syndrome. The first is denial. The person is unable to accept that they are being abused or they justify it as being quote-unquote just that once. The next stage is guilt. The person believes that they caused the abuse. The third stage is enlightenment. In this phase, the person realizes that they didn't deserve the abuse and acknowledges that their partner has an abusive personality. The last stage is responsibility. The person accepts that only the abuser holds responsibility for the abuse. In many cases, this is when they'll explore their options for leaving the relationship. For a woman in an abusive relationship, the most dangerous time is when she and her partner are discussing or thinking about separation. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, the battered woman syndrome expands the concept of legal self-defense. This defense holds that a battered woman is virtually held hostage in a violent household by a man who isolates and terrorizes her, convincing her that if she leaves, he will track her down and kill her. Battered woman syndrome has been used as a defense in criminal cases since the late 1970s. Women who kill their batterers may claim that the killing was committed in self-defense. The law considers self-defense an act of justification. Battered woman syndrome is allowed as a defense in 39 U.S. states and in other countries, including Canada, the United Kingdom, and New Zealand. Jenny, what are your thoughts on battered woman syndrome, and do you think it should be allowed as a defense to murder? I think it's very much a real syndrome, and it should be used as a defense. Tons of people experience abuse, and to me, it only makes sense that some people just quote-unquote break and attack their abuser. It's, I don't know if it's really like a fight or flight response because, you know, if you're experiencing this in a way, it's almost like a fight or flight response. Yes, you've experienced abuse at the hands of this person and other people multiple times. And then in just that situation, you decide you're going to fight or your brain decides it for you. There's only so much abuse some people can take. And just imagine the trauma and suffering just building and building in you before it explodes in somebody. I think a gray area can arise legally between someone that's been abused and unprompted kills their abuser versus someone killing their abuser during a moment of abuse. I don't necessarily think that, but I think legally, sometimes that stuff can be hard to prove. I had never heard of the stages of the battered woman syndrome before, so I thought that was really interesting that you included that in there, Del. 
What are your thoughts? I think that I agree that it's such a gray area legally. And I agree with the two scenarios that you presented where in a case of active abuse, active harm, I think that the general concept of self-defense is in play. And that's definitely a strong mitigating factor, especially if you are meeting force with force, including deadly force. My issue has always been when it is unprompted, when you are relying on past abuse to justify killing someone. In a lot of cases, as I was looking at different examples of people who have used the battered woman syndrome, the alleged abuser is sleeping or in some other compromised position. And for me, it's hard to connect the dots in why at that moment someone decided to kill. I think that it becomes a thing of why was it during a defenseless moment on their end that you decided to strike? Because for me, that goes to a level of planning. And Historically, when you think of self-defense, you don't think of premeditation. You think of a innate survival response to someone else's harmful actions towards you. And while I think that it's fine to be included under the banner of self-defense, I think that in a lot of cases, too much power is given to it as a separate category. I think it's also connected to when there is a male and female criminals together and battered woman syndrome is used as a way to mitigate the woman's responsibility. And generally that leads to her receiving a very different sentence for the crimes that she committed with her male partner. We talked about it on a previous case where the female side of the criminal parent got 16 years and the male side got the death penalty. And the question becomes, how far do we take battered woman syndrome and how much reduced legal culpability do we give to people who uh, claim to be suffering from the syndrome? I think it's also connected to, like you were speaking to before, she said situation, because at the end of the day, when this defense is being used, you're only hearing one side of it. And the question becomes, how impartial is that side? The question becomes, how close to reality is the story that the person that is alleging that they're suffering from battered woman syndrome? Like, how close is it? It's very easy to have a story be told when only one side of it has the opportunity to provide details. So I'm not against the use of the syndrome, but I think we need to be very careful with its application. And we need to make sure that we are vetting as best as we can the information that's being presented because there is a self-serving purpose for anyone using this defense to mitigate their actions. I will say when you say like, oh, why would someone, I guess, like, kill their abuser when they're sleeping. I think it has to probably do with the fact that they have some type of, like, power over the abuser, some type of, like, one-up as in the fact that, like, I'm 
you know, like fully awake and like conscious whatnot. And I have more control over this situation. I know with Lorena Bobbitt, her story was that she had been raped by her husband and then he went to sleep. And then that's when she, I guess, quote unquote, snapped and got the knife and attacked him. So in that situation, I understand that for sure. That control, I mean, for some people, you know, if they are like, so if they're so isolated and controlled by their abuser, that sleeping might be the only time they have like any kind of freedom from them. So I can understand that. I think my response to that would be, why use that power that you have when the person is defenseless to attack them instead of using that time to leave? I can see that, but... It is a very, abuse is a very complex thing. And we're not saying like, you know, we understand it. We're not saying every situation is the same because it is easier for some people to leave for various reasons. But legally, that is something that will be asked for sure. Absolutely. And I absolutely agree with you. Abuse is so complex and so unique to the individual situations that are happening that there's so many questions that arise from it. And I think that's why. Even self-defense as a general concept is always so murky when it comes to being in the legal arena because you want to make sure that you're doing things that are fair and just. And you also want to make sure that you are not creating a situation where murder would be tolerated as long as you have a good enough reason. Because you know, for a lot of people, they can create the best of reasons, but we obviously don't want to have a society that allows for rampant murder and vigilante justice. The story of Betty Broderick is often used as an example of a scorned woman seeking revenge on a man that wronged her. This is often connected to her expectation of what marriage would be like for her. From a very young age, Betty was told that her path in life, from a very young age, was told what her path in life should be. This mainly included being a dutiful wife and a mother. This is connected to society's expectations of women, and while the expectations have evolved, many still feel like a woman's path to happiness is through marriage and motherhood. This expectation can lead to women putting extreme pressure on themselves, and like Betty, many women snap once this facade is broken. Jenny, what do you think of the pressures many women face especially what is expected of women as wives and mothers. There's definitely a ton of seen and like unseen pressure still that women face that so many people don't realize. One of the things that I was, (laughs) I did read the comments on some of these Betty Broderick videos, which I know is very like dangerous territory. But when it came to her children, her children, I would say like generally stuck to the side of their father and a few people, I thought this was interesting. A few people commented saying like when her children are older, particularly her daughters that they think they're going to understand where Betty was coming from more, not with the murder, but being so distraught and betrayed with the divorce and her husband cheating. And that so many times mothers hide what they're going through from their children in order to be the number one super mom to them. So even if her children maybe didn't see her struggling with some of this stuff, she was still struggling with it. But with like being a wife and a mother, it's almost like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's, I think, called the double bind. So like, 
you're like a it's great if you're like a really involved mother but then some people will question like well why why don't you have a career why was this your path but then if you are like a career woman you're neglecting your children like how could you do this to them and that's not always something that men face you know everything is case by case but like on a large scale that's not something people talk about in regards to men it's expected that they will provide for their wives and children I do like you we had kind of said women today I think face less or at least different pressure than Betty did but it definitely still exists and it's it's work keeping a house together and caring for children and having to keep up with appearances like literally and figuratively kind of going off that like women are allowed to age. women are not allowed to age and men are and that is something that we talked about earlier with the way Dan would speak to Betty and I'm sure she felt used by Dan because she stood by as he succeeded she helped him succeed she took care of the children alone she had said in her interview with Oprah that she felt like a single parent because she would go on vacations with the kids by herself because Dan was too busy working. She, Betty worked multiple jobs to get him through school. And then he left her and he cheated on her and he made her feel crazy. So I can understand she has every right to be upset in that situation. And yes, she worked these jobs willingly. She wanted to support him. That's something lots of people do. Lots of women do kind of give up their lives for their husbands, maybe a little less now, but so many men can succeed now because the women are at home holding down the children and the family and the house and whatnot. And I think that's why a lot of women did relate and support Betty. Even if you go on the comments, I saw tons of people saying, I don't condone murder, but like I was married to a guy like Dan and it was awful for me to get through. And like, I understand where she's coming from. Like I didn't kill anybody, but I can understand her frustration and giving up your life is not really something that men experience widely at least it's not something we talk about I'm sure it happens more often with maybe some men staying at home to raise their children so their wife can be the breadwinner but we don't often hear about men giving up things for their wives to succeed so I think that is the pressure that we're talking about and really at the center I think of the Betty and Dan Broderick case what are your thoughts I definitely agree with you I think that even though the pressures have changed and evolved and there's a whole lot more equality a lot of the child rearing responsibilities are still placed primarily on women and i think the perception is women are more willing to sacrifice their careers and everything related to that for the sake of their family obviously that's not everyone's experience but i think that does paint a general picture I think that when it comes to Betty, it was definitely from a very young age. Like we said, she had this expectation. And once Dan left the house, all of that came crumbling down. She had to face the prospects of having to start over. And connected to what you were saying about women not being allowed to age while men traditionally have been, She wasn't starting over as a 22-year-old, fresh-from-college woman. She was starting over as a woman that was coming out of a failed marriage with four children and not much to her name that was hers. 
I do think that there is something to be said about successful partnerships where one partner is able to sacrifice for the other. But I think that this just speaks to making sure that no matter what happens, that there is a level of equity in a relationship and that even if you are in a partnership with someone who is financially well off, you're making sure you're doing what you need to make sure that you are financially secure without them. And I know a lot of times people, they speak of marriage and partnerships as, you know, you're one, but I think you have to be realistic and know that Even if you believe you have the most perfect marriage in the world, the most perfect relationship, things do happen. And if they do, you don't want to be on the side that has lost out. And you don't want to be on the side that is contemplating their future with dread or uncertainty. And I think that is really what Betty was facing. She was facing a life that was absent of all the things that she was taught that would make her life great and make her life worth living in a lot of ways. Well said. There have been many examples of women who have killed their husbands or ex-husbands for a variety of reasons. And we're going to look at two examples. The first one is the murder of Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman was a famous comedian and actor who starred in Saturday Night Live and The Simpsons, and he married Brienne in 1987, and they had two children together. On May 27, 1998, after returning home from a dinner with a friend, Brienne had a quote-unquote heated argument with Phil, after which he went to bed. She entered his bedroom sometime before 3 a.m. on May 28, 1998, and as he slept, fatally shot him once between the eyes, once in the throat, and once in the upper chest with a Charter Arms 38 caliber handgun. He was 49 years old. She was taking Zoloft, had been drinking alcohol, and had recently used cocaine. Brienne then drove to the home of her friend Ron Douglas and confessed to the killing, but he didn't believe her. They drove back to the house in separate cars, and she called another friend and confessed a second time. On seeing Hartman's body, Douglas called 911 at 6.20 a.m. Police arrived and escorted Douglas and Hartman's two children from the premises, by which time Brienne had locked herself in the bedroom. Shortly afterwards, she committed suicide by self-inflicted gunshot. The police stated Hartman's death was caused by quote-unquote domestic discord between the couple. A friend said Brienne, quote, had trouble controlling her anger. She got attention by losing her temper, end quote. Next, we'll talk about Susan Wright. According to evidence presented by the prosecution, on January 13th, 2003, Susan Wright, age 26, tied her husband, Jeff Wright, age 34, to their bed and stabbed him 193 times with two different knives. She buried his body in their Houston backyard. She attempted to cover up the crime scene by painting the bedroom. The next day, Wright filed a false domestic abuse report in order to get a restraining order against her husband. On January 18th, Wright asked her attorney, Neil Davis, to come to her home and admitted to stabbing her husband. 
Davis contacted the Harris County District Attorney's Office to inform them a body was buried under Susan Wright's house and that she had confessed to the killing. Thirteen months after her arraignment, Wright's murder trial commenced on February 24, 2004. At her trial, Susan Wright testified in her own defense. In her emotional testimony on the stand, Wright claimed, quote, I couldn't stop stabbing him. I couldn't stop. I knew as soon as I stopped, he was going to get the knife back and he was going to kill me. I didn't want to die, end quote. She testified that on the night of the murder, Jeff Wright was on a cocaine binge and was violent, having allegedly beaten her. Wright once again insisted that she stabbed her husband in self-defense. Susan Wright's mother, among others, testified for the defense, claiming they witnessed Wright's bruises. On March 3, 2004, after more than five hours of deliberations, the jury convicted Wright of murder. Wright showed little reaction of the guilty verdict. Wright was sentenced on the following day. Prosecutors were hoping for at least a 55-year sentence, while Wright's attorneys argued for probation for their client. The jury sentenced Wright to 25 years in prison. In 2005, the 14th Court of Appeals of Texas and Houston upheld Susan Wright's conviction. With a reappeal in 2008, a new witness, Misty McMichael, the wife of former NFL Super Bowl champion Steve McMichael, an ex-fiance of Jeff Wright, came forward to tell her story of how she endured abuse and violence during her four-year relationship with Jeff Wright. On November 20, 2010, Wright had her sentence reduced to 20 years in prison, five years less than her original sentence. Wright was first eligible for parole on February 28, 2014, at the age of 38. She was denied parole on June 12, 2014, and again on July 24, 2017. Wright was approved for parole on July 2, 2020. On Wednesday, December 30, 2020, Wright was released on parole at the age of 44. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these cases? I had never heard of Susan Wright before. I did know about the murder of Phil Hartman and Bryn. We've talked about The Simpsons before. I love The Simpsons. So it's really sad to hear about Phil's murder. And I know Bryn definitely had some struggles with addiction. And I think I have heard that she was trying to overcome them. And then one of her friends kind of pushed her to do drugs again. And then this happened very shortly after. So it's really devastating. I feel so bad for their children. Susan Wright, this is, I like I said, I've never heard of it. So it's interesting to me. Her testimony, I think, is especially interesting. If it's really true that she thought, like, if she didn't stop stabbing him, he was going to, like, kill her, come back to life and kill her. That's really disturbing and upsetting. And I think it shows that she probably wasn't in the right mental state. You know, if what she's saying is indeed true. I mean, it sounds like this guy was abusive to people in the past. And if she had people as part of her defense saying that there were bruises, I mean, it's definitely plausible that night he could have been abusing her, especially if large amounts of drugs were involved. What do you think? I agree with you. I'm also a fan of The Simpsons, and the Phil Hartman case is one of those celebrity true crime cases that always strikes a chord with people, I think, because of how out of nowhere it seemed. And the fact that it was his wife that had murdered him. I think that drugs probably played a very large part, especially the mixing of drugs that we saw in that case. I do think it's interesting that she tried to confess twice. 
And the first time she wasn't believed until the person actually saw the body. I think that's really interesting and something that you don't hear often. A lot of times when someone confesses, the next thing you hear is that that person immediately went to the police. So it was interesting in that case that he actually needed to see the body in order to take that next step to call the police. And I think it's definitely tragic, irregardless of what she did, that she took her own life. When it comes to Susan Wright, it's just a roller coaster and it's very hard to know what to believe. It's definitely a case that really is connected to Betty Broderick, the overall case in this episode, because it is a story of abuse. It is a story of we know one side of the story and we don't know the other but I think the most impactful thing for me was the story of Misty McMichael and when she was describing the abuse that she suffered at the hands of Jeff Wright because to me that speaks to a pattern of behavior and it definitely adds more plausibility to what Susan Wright was saying and when you hear that she stabbed him 193 times, that does sound like a break from her normal mental capacities. And like you said, the fact that she thought that after 193 stab wounds, he could still come back to hurt her really speaks to the abuse that she could have endured at his hands. She is out now. There wasn't too much information on what she's doing, but I hope that she was able to get the psychological help that she needed. As we know, the prison system does not do well with mental health, so I doubt that she got much while she was in jail. So hopefully now that she's out, she is getting the help that she needs to recover from what was likely a very traumatic experience for her. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Betty Broderick case. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with an episode focused on Dorothea Puente. As always, stay safe.